Okay. So you're a big fan of rocks. Of rocks, yes. Why? <laughs> All kinds. <laughs> Why? Why do I like rocks? I am by no means a geologist. I, it's more of a of an appreciation of nature and understanding of our planet and understanding of a sense of place. But I think that the rocks are, they're like time capsules, aren't they? They're pretty cool. And I think that when you pay attention, I know so many people who, there's so many things to think about when you're making wine. And so not everyone's going to stop in a vineyard and look at rocks. I'm a weirdo. I, that's something that I think is cool. <laughs> <laughs> but the discovery then that happens, and it's interesting when you are working with um, sites that do not yet have the history or the geological history completely mapped out, if that makes sense. Certainly they know in Southern Oregon what the soils are. That goes without, without speaking. But, but there has not yet been a deep dive into the structures that caused some of the series that we see in the soils in Southern Oregon, not quite like they do in the Willamette Valley. Everyone knows about the Missoula floods. It is the geological conversation, almost the only geological conversation that we have in Oregon. Right. So the fact that I'm bringing up a conversation that is completely devoid of that has nothing to do with the Missoula floods. And it is absolutely interesting. And I think it's like a fairy tale of geology. I think it's super freaking cool, especially when, as you and I know, when we make comparisons and we talk about places like the Loire Valley, which was under a tidal basin, Paris was under a tidal basin about 150 million years ago. And that tidal basin is what we have in the expression of the vineyards of the Loire Valley with all that ancient ocean, that bottom material, the rocks, the mollusks, shells, all the fossils and and so to say that we had something, dare I say, similar, it's not similar because it's very unique to the Pacific, but that there was this subduction that happened 250 million years ago and violently cast out a fan worth of ocean bottom material. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody. And it you drives know, me bananas. I, I totally get what you're saying. There, I'm still... I've been making wine for nearly 30 years. I read a lot about wine. I write a lot about Livermore and about Cab Franc and the like. I don't know what terroir really is still, but I do appreciate the idea that plants grow differently in various places. The micro effects of the kind of rock that the vine's roots are going through, the aspect of the sun, the amount of sun, wind, rain, all of those factors, those terroir-driven factors, affect how the vine ripens, when it ripens, how that ripening pattern affects the particular variety that's planted on that vine are all gigantically important to the overall quality of fruit, to the overall, certainly the overall sense of the place, which I think is a hugely important thing. And we're beginning to talk about that kind of thing in, in American wine, West Coast wine. It's been a mm -hmm. European conceit forever or yeah. fact or however you want to define it. <laughs> I love the idea. I love the fact that you're interested in this because you're a very thoughtful person. You're a very thoughtful winemaker. I think that that the subduction of 250 million years ago is a meaningful event to be certain for that area of Oregon that you're getting fruit. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is part of what makes wine a bottomless thing, isn't it? And that's the majesty of wine to me is that- Absolutely. It, you never get to the end of it, right? Never get to the bottom and of it. And the truth is that these are not things that are metrics of, of of quality necessarily. It's 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 more of to me a metric of validation, if you will. Of this seems like the right kind of grape to plant here, because we know historically in the old world that they've done well in these types of soils. It has nothing to do with it being. Look, people for a long time have tried to make comparisons with. Oregon, the Willamette Valley, and Burgundy. And the truth is right. they're two very different places. Right. But you can draw some comparisons. You can make some connections, right? Meaningful right. connections. And that's all I'm saying is I'm not trying to ever emulate. When I first started, I think I naively was trying, I was chasing an idea of the Loire Vine Valley because I love those wines. But as I became more and more aware of my my own backyard, my sites, walking through these vineyards, I completely understood that my role is not to replicate something that's already been done, but to 
build a story that has yet to be told. And, but again, it's these comparisons. And I know, you know, exactly what I mean by that. We can draw these comparisons. Livermore is not the Loire, but you have these comparisons, right? That, that make it, that validate your decision to grow this grape. And I think we get along so well for a number of reasons, but I think that we both, we both are working in areas that have suffered by comparison to more famous regions that are close by through no fault of our own. I like the idea. And I, I think we're both similar in this regard too. I think we both like tilting at windmills in a way. I think <laughs> that we like being at the forefront of talking about regions that aren't famous yet, but that have a reason for being that, that in our minds are completely valid for doing what it is we want to do, but the larger world doesn't know enough about yet. And, and I'm a missionary, I'm a proselytizer, I'm a Johnny Appleseed, I'm a whatever I am, but yeah. it has to be done in order to validate what, what it is that we're trying to accomplish and get that message out to a larger audience. And one of the reasons why I attached to the Loire Valley when I started out and I played with words like Loire again, and I was just trying right. to, because I knew that the general public and even the wine professionals were not making connections to Oregon Cabernet Franc at all. So I needed to give them something to think about so that they didn't assume that this was going to be some wildly poorly made, strange, over-oaked, over-extracted, just common West Coast Cabernet Franc. And I don't mean to throw anyone under the bus. It's just not what I wanted to make. And I wanted to be very clear what I was aiming for. I think so. You, you need, I need, I needed that. I needed that comparison in order to, to get started. I mean, you've been in the wine game. We'll talk about this in in a little bit in in a variety of different roles. So you know as much about messaging of wine as anybody that I know, and it's maybe a more important role. Certainly, it's equally as important as making great wine. Is being mm -hmm. able to tell the story as to why this ought to be on somebody's radar. It, it, the reality of the situation is you can yeah. make the greatest wine in the world, but if nobody knows about it, it doesn't really exist, frankly, right? It takes somebody to perceive the right. thing you are giving them mm -hmm. to imbibe for that thing to really have any life. Wine in a barrel, in a cellar, yeah. in the quiet with the winemaker pulling a thief full of wine out and tasting it and evaluating it is one of the most amazing things in the world for me. I love it. But I exist in this weird little vacuum. Yeah. That isn't reality until mm -hmm. that wine's in a bottle that somebody <laughs> opens, right? And says, Jesus Christ, this thing affects me in a way, yeah. emotional way, as the winemaker probably wanted me to experience it or some semblance thereof. And having that hook right. is crucial. Having a There's so many messages out there, so many different mm -hmm. ways of getting the message, all various social media channels, yeah, all this kind of stuff. Yeah that you need to be able to break through that clutter and tell an authentic message that's about what it is that moves Leah Jorgensen, right? You are, you're, you have parentage that's Oregon-centric, but you grew up yes. on the East Coast, mm -hmm. is that correct? I did, yes. So I, I have a complex backstory for sure, doesn't everyone in America, we're mutts, most of us, but yeah, my dad's family, both his mother's side and his father's side, ended up in the Northwest via the via Scandinavia. They were farmers, fishermen, but they were farmers in Oregon. And there's just a really cool backstory of characters of ancestors who came here who worked really hard on, in farming. And my dad grew up on a farm outside of Eugene. He, like Beth, went to the University of Oregon. He marched in the University of Oregon marching band at the 1958 Rose Bowl. Awesome. So I think that's cool. I like to remind Beth that I was like, he played, right. he, he, I thought he played drum trombone. I don't know, whatever, but brass. And so I have this, yes, this very much this paternal roots here in, in Oregon. My, my dad's parents were both buried outside or in Eugene. And then my mom's side, she's Italian mostly and grew up in Pennsylvania and my great grandfather, when he immigrated here from Italy, he was a, a very successful businessman and a, an importer. He imported wine, olive oil, and he had the most successful Italian grocery store in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. Not mob. I always feel like I have to defend that he was not in the mafia. <laughs> he fought the mafia. Yeah. In fact, I have 
the counter stories of him fighting the mafia. And there were moments of like danger, I think for my mom's family, because he wouldn't comply and whatever it's, there's, this is family history, but doing my research, I found out that uh, my great grandfather was a descendant of Marchese Stravino in the Campania in Italy. And so these were the Baron, he was the Baron Piero Marchese, I'm sorry, Marchese uh, Piero Stravino was the baron of the Campania in Italy. And so they had many vineyards and there was a wine label, Marchese Stravino, for many years until I think the mid mid 2000, like 2008 or so, they sold to a conglomerate. So the label no longer exists, but I still have labels and stuff. So it's pretty cool. That is cool. That's a great story. I, there's something. That's my about, backstory. <laughs> that's, that's a great backstory. I, it, there's something about. I I don't know exactly how to define whether it's a function of stubbornness, a function of not feeling comfortable doing something else, or the opposite is that you can't that you love what it is you do so much that you can't imagine doing something else. But six seven generations now in California wine. <laughs> though there have been some starts in terms of education and ideas about what, what one might want to do with that education that was different than the wine business. But I admire the families that have been around when, and have weathered all of the disasters that seem to be an annual occurrence in agriculture. And I, I, I salute all of yeah. us <laughs> who've persisted in, in dealing with all the things that, that we have zero control over, which seems to be just about every part of the wine business. Oh, yeah. I, Outside of a, outside of a little bit of, of winemaking, perhaps, you where did you go to school? Where'd you go to college? So I went to a woman's college in Virginia called Sweetbriar, and I swore I would never go to a woman's college because all the women, basically, on my mom's side of the family, went to women's colleges, mostly Catholic, <laughs> and I was just like, nope, <laughs> not going to do that. <laughs> I thought I was really interested in the University of Virginia and Wake Forest, Wake Forest because at the time. Um, Maya Angelou was the director of writing there, and I knew I wanted to do something with writing, but I did my research. And for me, it just, I, lo and behold, found out that this college sweetbriar was the best place for me. I was able to play two sports that I love and not just, I started as a freshman, you know what I mean? I never sat the bench and that's just a very different experience. And had I gone division one, I would have probably had to wait till my junior year to play, honestly. And I was just like, let's face it, there, there's no women playing professional lacrosse. So I think it's just more important to, to value the fact that these are the last four years I'll probably ever play this competitively. So that took, that was a factor for me. I was recruited by the, the coaches there and it was nice to be a big fish in a small pond. And then also, yeah, because my lacrosse team in high school was state champion. So we were wow. a pretty solid East Coast. That's the birth of- Were really you in Pennsylvania? Lacrosse. Is that where you went to high school or where did you go to Virginia, Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. Okay. When I met you in Washington, D.C., yeah, I, right. I pretty much stayed very close to home for a long time. Gotcha. Gotcha. But at Sweetbriar, yeah, I ended up majoring in English. I took a lot of chemistry classes. I thought initially I wanted to go pre-med to become a pediatrician. It's funny how things weave in and out of your life and the journey, because the health piece of my healthcare piece has always been an, an interesting and in, in a point of interest for me. So I've just gone on a different route with that. But, but I did major in English literature and creative writing and focusing mostly on poetry. My, my mentor and teacher was Mary Oliver. So I was very blessed to have that kind of writer at my fingertips. Our workshops were like eight people. So like I had a relationship with Mary Oliver, my most treasured possessions next to wine stuff are my signed copies of her books and the letters she wrote to me when, she, after I graduated, cause I was going to get an MFA in creative writing and I was going to be a poet. Did you not know it? I was going to be a poet, Stephen, <laughs> but that's going to be my crone years. I think I'm going to have a long silver braid down my back, walking barefoot and the woods writing poems when I'm like 70. I, there's never a bad time. Never right. have time to to use words to helpful and beneficial <laughs> effect to people. Your you have an ancestry, an Italian ancestry that was mm -hmm. in the wine business in various forms. Yep. Were your parents into wine? Were, were did, was there wine on the kitchen table when you were a kid? It's funny. It's bigger than that. Like, like when I would go to my grandma's, my grandparents' house in Pennsylvania, weddings anniversary parties like Italians have big parties all the freaking time Sunday dinner is like a big deal so Sunday dinner at my grandparents house 
my grandmother always, there was always wine. They were really into beer too, because my grandfather was also Austrian and my great uncle owned one of the most famous breweries in Pennsylvania, Neuweiler Brewery. Wow. So let's just say fermenting alcohol has been in my family for, for a long okay. time. So they were one of the oldest next to Yingling. They were one of the oldest breweries in, in Pennsylvania. So we had a beer connection too. So there was always beer there was and, and wine mostly. And when I was like little, like my grandma would put wine with a little Italian soda. So five years old, we were drinking wine. It was That's funny. Cool. And That's pretending cool. we were also, we were being sacrilegious, like doing like the Eucharist, the Catholic Eucharist with Necco wafers, the Italian Necco candy wafers. Yes. <laughs> my grandma's <laughs> wine with soda, like child I, protective I, services. An iconoclast <laughs> at the very, at the very young age. I like it. I like it. <laughs> you are in college. You have a, a degree in English and writing. What's the first wine job? My first wine job. So I was working at a corporate think tank in DC and I was sitting in a cube with just a bunch of cube monkeys. And I just remember looking up and being like, what the, there's got to be more to life than this. Like I was miserable. And it was like one of the most coveted places to work. It was one of those places where it was the dot-com era. It was the nineties, right? So there was a lot of money. And if our team made our incentives they flew us to Paris France and we stayed in amazing hotels and we got Louis Vuitton bags and it was just bananas wow and there was just so much money in the 90s and it was really fun we had fun I feel sorry for some of these younger generations because I don't think they're having fun but we had a lot of fun (laughs) yeah and anyway so I was at this think tank and I just had this sort of pre-midlife I think I had a I don't know that early, cause you know, your early adult crisis, my midlife crisis came early and I just was like, this is not working for me. I was cr- literally crying in my cube, like just yeah. so disengaged and not right. motivated. Right. And I just, so I left my job to manage a little wine shop in Washington, DC. And my parents were like, what the hell are you doing? Why did we send you to college? Like, why did we pay for you to go to a private school? What are you doing? And I had no idea, but my instinct has always been right. And my instinct was, this just feels like something I should be doing. I wanted to learn more about wine. I understood a lot about Italian wines, the regular Orviettos and whatever, easy drinking wines that we always had around. But but then I just, yeah, that was a step. It was called Best Sellers. I don't know if you remember these wine shops. Josh Wesson, do you remember Josh oh, Wesson? Sure, sure. I know this. Yeah, I know Josh. Yeah, he's based in New yeah. York. Yeah, I was one of right. his employees. Oh, no kidding. Where was this shop? It was originally this wine shop called Grape Finds in DuPont Circle. Okay. And it was owned, I can't remember by the dude's name. He was the wine writer for the Washington Post, Michael, oh, in the gosh. 90s. I can't remember. I don't remember offhand. Um, 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. It'll come to me in a minute. Yeah. Okay. So he started this wine shop and best, he basically modeled it after bestsellers. So there was a lawsuit and bestsellers won. So bestsellers took over the wine shop and they hired two managers. I was one of the two managers that was hired knowing like I was very green at the time, but, but yeah, that's how I got in. Interesting. It's weird. That's these resonances. I was an assistant (laughs) manager at Foggy Bottom Liquors. Stop it. Yeah, near the Watergate when I was, I think, a junior in college. I went to George Washington University. So that's I, right. I, I lived with yes. these for four years and right. got to that liquor store somehow. I don't know. I worked all throughout college, crown yeah. books and various oh, yeah. stuff. And I, I have a degree in literature as well. So it, it's a, <laughs> a master's. Of- You're my Gemini. <laughs> yeah, exactly. DC was a fun place to be. I, I mm-hmm. was there. I was there in the 80s, but DC is a really interesting place. To, to live for a while, not a place I'd want it. Summers there are terrible, but yeah, horrific. But we met, so when did your distribution career, distributor yeah. sales people? So when we, when our paths, when our yeah. paths connected across yeah. that, so I was in the wine shop in 2000 to 2001. So I was there when 9-11 happened and we evacuated. That was crazy. I had to leave the shop because New York, they were under attack. It was, that was something. Left best sellers. And I just wanted to get more into the world of wine. So I took a job working. What did I do from there? Oh, I went to work at a winery next. I worked at Chrysalis Winery in Middleburg. 
Okay. Because I wanted to learn a little bit more on the production side. That's right. And so I was there as their director of, uh, it's like their tasting room, their retail services, like managing that stuff, their events. I managed their events offsite, onsite. It was fine. It was great. I learned a lot. It was a fun experience for sure. And in the, it's funny because while I was there, I was friends with the winemaker, the assistant winemaker, and I was always jealous of his work. I was always thinking, I wish I could do that. And I never had the courage. And especially, I hate to say this, but back then in 2002, I looked at myself as a woman. I was like, I didn't see very many women winemakers. And I was just like, I would, it was never going to, that would never happen. I just right. literally shut myself down, like back into 2002, when I had this dream and this moment of, I would love to do what you're doing. And I shut that down. So let me, I, I like the way this conversation is going. It's going differently than I thought it might, which is good. So let me jump here then. So what happened? How did Leah Jorgensen change? So that thought process back in 2002, or that kind of, hey, that would be cool to be a winemaker. How did that actually come to pass? So when I left there, when I left Chrysalis, I wanted to get back to international wine. And so I did the WSET program. And so I got the intermediate and I had to go to New York and do the exam up in New York because they didn't have it in DC. So I, I was very interested. I'm a, I love education and I'm very disciplined when it comes to education. So for me, it made sense. Like I, if I want to know everything, then if I'm going to be passionate about something, then I want to know everything about something. That's sure. just how I'm wired. So I thought I'll do this path and it's like anything else. And I find this, especially when you're learning science, sciences, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. So you're on a quest to learn more. It's just, it's just this cycle, right? I got to learn more. I got to learn more. And wine is always changing, right? Regions change, vintages change. Like things are always, it's this very circular thing. So I was very attracted to that. So that gave me the first bit of confidence because now I was really from an academic kind of point of view, I was feeling like more confident in my knowledge of the world of wine at that point. And so I was working for a distributor then. That's when I signed on. When I did the W set, I was working at Wines Limited, which was then merged with Select Wines and then became Wine Partners. And then it became, I think RNDC eventually took that over. But by the time when I met you and I was there, I, it was still, I don't know if it was Wines Limited or Wine Partners, but it was still like Serge, Martin, right, those guys. Right. And so I had, and each step I was getting more confidence in my expertise and knowledge. And again, it was funny because when I was working for the distributor, it was still a time when there were mostly guys and I would have to like, it was like, I'm not trying to pull a feminist card on your podcast today, but <laughs> this is the flow. This is what's happening. What's happening? Um, right? this, is what ha this is what's happening. <laughs> but I would go into, you talked about some of those retail accounts. There are some big old important retail accounts, liquor stores in Washington, DC. And there was one in particular where I had to go in there. And if I didn't sit on the guy's lap to give him my order to take, to get the order then I didn't get the order and all the dudes, other sales reps from different distributors would just stand there and like snicker and laugh. And it was so humiliating. I would just go out to my car, just cry. Like I was just, I'm not a crybaby. I swear. I've just had these moments that were just like, why is this happening? And that wasn't that long ago. So as I try to mentor other young women, I just try to make this point of we've been building bridges, even my generation, Gen X, we've been trying to do things so you will never have to go through certain things. But even with those weird setbacks, I still was gaining confidence. And so when I was invited to Pinot Camp, I didn't even know I was a con I was a contender. Like they were Domaine Druen through Dreyfus Ashby. Um, they were having a, an incentive for their Oregon property to mean video and myself and this fellow Lucian, who was in the Baltimore market, we both had the highest sales of that product and we were invited to Pinot camp. And so it blew my mind. And that was my first time to Oregon because my dad's parents passed before I was born. So all of my family stuff has been focused on my mom's family. Gotcha. So there was a lot of generational kind of like mystical, like the world universe is playing for me to be here for a reason. So I landed in Oregon and for a Pinot camp and I basically stayed, I basically That's found a job and stayed. So that kind of is, it was a building thing. I'm answering your question in a long way, but it, it was just, I was following the breadcrumb trail. That's basically what happened. That's, I think 
it was fated. I really do believe like we have, we do have self-control, but I believe the universe puts breadcrumb trails and you can choose to follow it or not. It's interesting. I, that is, I, I don't put that out of my mind right away. Mm-hmm. I think that there are, there are decisions that get made or that one makes sometimes they're more passive than active, but that lead you to a place. And the ultimate goal for me is to try to be happy, right? To be as happy as I can be and to be as, to bring as much joy as I can to people through the stuff that I do, the writing I do, the winemaking I I do. And it takes courage to follow the crumbs because having enough money to pay your bills, especially when you have kids, um, is yeah. as you is uh, a concern, and and, mm-hmm. and I admire people who are willing to say, "My kid's going to eat always, no matter where I am, no matter what I do. I might as right. well try to be happy about and become the the best version of myself that I can become." And because we work so hard and work so long, the what we do, what it is that that who we are, which is for me bundled up in not entirely. In, in what I do, but mostly in what I do. And we'll talk about Tab Frank here in a minute, but it takes courage to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to follow this trail. It may be silly. It may be, what are you doing managing a wine store when we've paid so totally. much money, right? Those kinds yeah. of things are require a leap of faith. And, and I think an innate sense of optimism, which is rare. Uh, and, and I'm attracted to people who are that way. I want to work with people who feel strongly about the, that, that things are going to end up working out for the most part. And that I'm going to devote my energy to putting that energy out in the world, as it were. What, what does Cabernet Franc mean? Ooh, so la, 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 bam, scorpion <laughs> tail. That was a good, that's, it should be an easy question, but that's not an easy question. That's why I asked? What him. is Cabernet Franc? I'm obviously not going to give the textbook answer, yeah, the parentage, of blah blah blah. But no, yeah, what, is, I, what is Cabernet Franc? It to me, yeah. it is. I'm going to just throw some words. How about that? I think it's underrated. I think it's misunderstood. I think it's the thinker of the wines, like the thinker. Yep. The statue, the sculpture. Yeah. Rodin, yeah. I think it is, yeah. I think it is the a conundrum. I think it is a I think it is I the thing I always say about it, and it's in my little feminine way, is that it's the Cinderella, ultimate Cinderella grape. If you think about the I will say the parable of Cinderella, the fairy tale. It's not about the stepsisters. It's she's always been the belle of the ball. You know what I mean? Right. Know what I mean? The other stepsisters. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, those you. obnoxious. They're not obnoxious, but you know I, what I'm saying. You know, I, you know what you, you mean. Can take Indeed. that. You can take that to whatever. Sure. You can take sure. whatever archetype you want with that. But I'm just saying that it's the belle of the ball, and those who know it, those who seek it. My work's like the fairy godmother, right? I just gotta ding, let it do its thing. You used an interesting word, and I heard it again earlier today. I was talking I'm to Wes. I, I was talking to Wes Hagen earlier, and you used this word, and he he. I asked him the same question, and he said, "Like people who love Cab Franc, make Cab Franc, are seekers. They're looking for something that is new and something that is on hmm. the that's on on an edge. Cabernet Sauvignon is a known quantity." Pinot Noir is a known quantity. Chardonnay is a known quantity for the most part. But Cab Franc folks are, Cab Franc winemakers are seeking something that hasn't been defined yet. And that's an exciting definition. And I think you're alluding to the same kind of thing. It's, it is a, I was going to say a thinking person's grape. Maybe it is. It's a feeling person's grape in my mind. It's a very emotional variety. And when done well, the wines are, Mm -hmm. That's where they're. That's where the depth in those wines to me is. It's these emotional connections that get created. This transformation of structure, acid, flavor profile, organoleptics get transmuted in some way magically into a conveyor of emotion. 
And not all wines are like that. A few are, in fact, in my mind. And I think Cabernet Franc is plays that role. Maybe that's its fundamental role to me. And that's something that I absolutely love about that grape. I also think that there's a certain amount of layer to it that I just don't see in a lot of varietals. And, and I will, there are a handful of Italian varietals where I feel that way. Sure. I truly, I don't want to bomb any other wine region, but I... My husband and I have come to really love Italian wine and there are so many surprises and, and most people just have no idea. They, they have no idea. They, they would never know how to order. It's unfortunately out of reach for a lot of people beyond the, and I'm, I'm not talking about just the table Chianti. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm talking about some of these wonderful regions and Alba and all these other places where you find these just aromatic the aromatics are unmatched i just don't find a lot of french wines that have the same layering of aromatics and i think cabernet franc is one of the few varietals that that does and it's interesting because i live in the land of pinot noir here and there's so many people who wax poetics about pinot noir and then they'll say they hate cab franc and i laugh so hard i'm like then you're not drinking the right cab franc because you're missing the entire point is that to me, Cap Franc is all of that and then some. It has the same lithe, elegant, lighter structure. People think Cap Franc is like this ginormous wine, grape varietal. And all of my wines are translucent. Right. All of them are translucent. You can put it over a piece of paper and read. Okay. Right. So that's going to tell you something about the body and the structure. Right. And then let's talk about just the fact that there are so many aromatic and flavor compounds that bring so much excitement. And I feel like I am finally able to really identify what makes an Oregon Cabernet Franc unique. And it really is the, it certainly gets a lot of the floral when we talk about violet, carnation, sometimes rose, but, and then the metallic or cement or mineral aspect of it. Um, And then of course the red fruit, but what, one of the things that I find, and the green as well, the and not necessarily bell pepper, the bell pepper hits in some places, but the how the pyrazines can play out in other ways, um, like in herbal ways and refreshing herbal ways. So that's interesting. And then pepper, of course, peppercorn. But what I think is unique to Oregon is that I always taste year in and year out all my wines. I've done these contemplative tastings. It's not missed is this sort of, smoky cigar, tea leaf, Lapsang Sushan tea quality. I mean, Lapsang Sushan is a black tea leaf that gets smoked over pine resin or pine, sorry, pine, pine needles. needles? Pine. Yeah, pine needles. Pine. <laughs> Anyways, and it has a very distinctive <laughs> aromatic. And so I, I finally am seeing this continuum of like how I can, how it, I find it, it expresses when we talk about Loire, they do this with Pinot Noir all the time. And it's, it, they, they're able to look at, and they get really geeky about clones and what it was going to say, the clones and root, well, terroir root and all the things. Yeah. That's the rootstock, but the, the clones and then terroir and specific aspects of Oregon. And it gets really geeky. And I think that's what attracted me to Oregon when I moved out here. Because I was working with Pinot Noir before I got into Cabernet Franc. Let's be very right. clear. And I know right. where my bread came from. It came from the world of Pinot Noir. Sure. So I do love it and I appreciate it. And I it gave me a very academic lens to look at wine. All that said, Cabernet Franc, now I'm able to start to see, I've only been doing this like 10, 12 years now. I'm able to start to see this kind of continuing this trend, if you will, when I'm tasting these wines. And so that's exciting to me because now we can talk about regional style. So when we talk about Cab Franc, this varietal, this sort of really yet to be truly appreciated and discovered, we can look at where it's in the old world, where it's been propagated and, and successful and has a history. And then we can look at new world pockets and where it's starting to make sense. And now we can start to really begin the own narrative for our own sub regions. And I think for Cabernet Franc, um, there is just this wildly exciting range of flavor compounds and especially aromatic compounds that make it so special. When you talk about the emotional, our nose and our sense of smell is what, boom, sucks us right into memory. Absolutely. Proust's Madeleine is the famous example, obviously, of taking you back to childhood and the like. And I 
and and obviously aromas and memory are a, a real thing to be certain. I, I think that there's a what I like about Cab Franc at this point in its history, at least in California and certainly in the Livermore Valley, is that it's it's really not known yet what it's going to be. It's been planted in Livermore for over a century, but it's been a blending grape. It's been a little bit grown here, a little bit grown there, and with no real sense that it ought to be something separate. And it's now when we're, right. we know that Cab Franc is giving us giving us something that's unusual and that that needs to be explained and expressed more that that we're in the real sweet spot in terms of its history in our area and I think in California as well and everything we do we're doing now is is adding to the very first chapters of Cab Franc and not the last chapters of Cab Franc so that's an exciting place to be as a winemaker and I think that Oregon I think it's very exciting for sorry yeah. go no go ahead go ahead yeah. I was just going to say, I believe. I was just going to say, I think it's very exciting. Keep going. Go ahead. There's Keep a trying. cut in our feedback. Go so go ahead. You, you go first. I, I was just going to say, I think Oregon is in, in a similar place, obviously, as you say. It, its industry may go back a century plus. Pinot Noir is really from the 1960s in Oregon. David Lett and the Ponzi family and the like. And Cabernet Franc is... is a, a small planting compared to the number of acres of Pinot Noir, just as it is in California compared to Cabernet Sauvignon. And so you're at the forefront, but you're also still at the at the very youth of uh, exploring what Cab Franc in Oregon is. A hundred percent. And I was going to say that you're in an interesting position too, because you have plantings that are historic and there is, there's time there that you have a conversation about clones in California for Cabernet Franc that we don't have up here. So right. like I have to do my research when I get in conversations with you and some of the peers because we don't have that. We have it for Pinot Noir 100%. We are writing the story on clones basically sure. for Pinot Noir. But for Cab Franc, I don't have all that accessibility. I have to dig around. I have to do my research. It's not available the way it is for you and to know, have that, the command of your clones. And that I feel at a real, it's a challenge for me to because it, as far as telling my story and to hopefully do a, the right job and do a good job at telling the story for Southern Oregon, I need to know these things. I need to get that. I need to get that information. And so it's not as easy for me to find, if that makes sense. It's, it's sure. silly, but it, it's, it's more of a challenge. And I sure. think it's important. So you have this sort of already an, an understanding of, a, of the varietal in your state. And the cool thing is, you are in a position, I know that there's some small boutique producers I've met along the way who are making some very interesting Cabernet Franc. And I don't know if you're familiar with them, like Gambling and McDuck. Do you know those guys sure. in Napa? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Newberry. Are you familiar with Newberry? No, not Newberry. Newberry. They're off the, the they're off the radar. Look, and you can maybe look them up. And there's maybe two two other ones that are really small. And I think they have the same aspirations because they're doing Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc. Right, and I haven't right. tasted all of them. I have tasted Gambling McDuck and they did do a sparkling white Cab Franc. So I, there's, I think there's a, a small segment there that is already trying to stir the pot. And I think you're in such a unique position because you have access to a place in a way that some of these people don't. Because they're pretty much like standard Napa and I'm not knocking anyone, but they're they're. I don't know if any of them are necessarily. I know Gambling McDuck. They are sourcing fruit as well. But my point is that I think you are in a, a be, the best position to give this sort of regional point of view, a lens, and then also to help restore the idea of Cabernet Franc. Not even restore, just renew, renew the idea of Cabernet Franc. Sure. But like you and like California, the, the grapes that I've had access to were planted for blending. So they were planted not with the intention of farming the way I wanted them to be farmed. So I had to do a lot of negotiating with my growers. And who am I? I'm tiny and I'm buying a small amount of fruit. But I was very clear that I need leaf removal in this way. I need this kind of irrigation. I need blah, 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 blah. And they met me where I was at so that I could make a style of wine that I wanted to make. So that's part of the challenge too, that we might not talk about is that 
for those of us who don't own our vineyards, we still have to work with vineyards that are not necessarily planting Cabernet Franc the way we would plant Cabernet Franc if they were our vineyards. Does that make sure. sense? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think there were somewhere in the mid, somewhere between nine and 10,000 tons of Cab Franc harvested in California in 22, 21, 22, compared to 250,000 tons of Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's a tiny amount. The acreage is small compared to Cabernet Sauvignon, obviously. I see all of the, I, I see growth in all of these factors. When if you start getting more fruit in the ground, there's there are powers that be that see some future for Cab Franc. And that's a question that we'll get to in a little bit. But I wanted to ask you first. So you're you have distribution jobs, you're working for Oregon wineries, who some of which are relatively big and who are doing Pinot Noir for the most part. So where is the, yeah. where's the come to Jesus moment for Cab Franc for you? When, what, was it a bottle of wine? Was it a, an opportunity to get off the beaten track of Pinot Noir and get a niche owned that you can own? Or how did that happen? So how did I get to Cabernet Franc here? When I finally realized I had the same inkling that I had when I was working for that Virginia winery of, oh, I really wish I could work in the cellar. But the difference is back then I shut myself down. This time I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to do it. So I had 10 years under my belt of competency in a region. I was on the board for the Denny Hills Wine Growers. I was a founding board member for the Denny Hills Wine Growers Association. So I felt like I put enough energy and juice into the Oregon wine industry that I got back a lot too. And so I worked for Pioneer and Wineries, Adelsheim, Erath. So I felt like I... I was basically treating my career like a master's degree program. I was ears up, paying attention to everything, learning whatever I could, when I could, however I could. And so at that point, I was working at Adelsheim. And when it was time, when I recognized that I was done working in the in the office, if you will, doing sales and marketing, national sales, marketing, marketing communication, I decided to leave a very secure job and do my first crush. And I worked at Anime Vineyards in Carlton. And it was through that experience. I was working with a a fantastic winemaker, Thomas Hausman, who went to Fresno and he was a friend and I was going through some stuff in my personal life. And it was just, I was always having these moments on the cusp of like crazy change. So, and it was like, I was on a precipice and I either go this way or I go that way. And just after working that harvest, I was like, I'm going to just all feed in. Just I'm going to leave behind a steady job where I had, I was making pretty much six figures at that point. I had a good salary and I threw that for an hourly wage. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a plan. I just was like, I was just like following the wind. (laughs) I'm going to just do this and see what happens. And so after working with Thomas, I was just like, okay, step one. I did step one. I I accomplished my first harvest. I did it. And then after that, I enrolled in Chemeketa's winemaking program here, which is through the, it's the Northwest Viticulture Center. It was founded or it was very heavily funded by Dick Erath when he sold his winery. So there was a lot of money that went into the research labs and stuff. So it was at the time, the best education center in Oregon for studying winemaking. So two-year program, I, I just needed to get some prerequisites out of the way, some microbiology and all that stuff was super fun. Right. And I got to dive into being a student again, which I love. I could be a full-time student if I was able to. Right. While I did that, I had lots of friends who are winemakers. And I learned about Drew Voigt through a friend and we had become friends. And he was the winemaker at the time at Shea Wine Cellars, which is arguably people say it's like the Grand Cru estate in the Willamette Valley because so many stars are making wine from that site. So I got to work for Drew and Drew was like an incredible mentor. I was the only person helping him with blending and doing some work heading into harvest. And then there were, he only hired three interns. So there was always two women he would hire and a guy. So there was always a balance of two men, two women, which I thought was really cool. And we just worked our asses off. It was just an incredible experience. So while I was working with him, I was finishing up school so I could ask him the questions that were pertained to my education. Like I could really make it applicable. And he became like a lifelong mentor. And while I was there, I knew I wanted to start something and I knew I wanted it to be Cab Franc. And so I talked to him at length about what to do, where to get fruit. And he introduced me. Well, I was friends with this guy, Chris Berg, who owns Roots Wine Winery. And he's, hey, listen, I think Chris is getting some Cab Franc. You should reach out to him. 
So he made, Drew was always willing to make connections for me, which I so much appreciated. So I contacted Chris and he was getting his Cabernet Franc from Le Colleen Vineyard in Walla, which is an iconic vineyard over there. Right. And I was like, listen, I just want a barrel's worth. Can you get me just 750 pounds, which is an obnoxious request. But he was like, absolutely. So I was able to do it like on a custom crush at his, at his winery where he worked. And so that's how it started. I got 750 pounds of Walla Cabernet Franc and I made a white Cab Franc, which I was like, this is either going to be a really cool experiment or it's going to blow up in my face and be the dumbest thing any idiot ever thought was possible. And luckily it took off. I made 23 cases and it immediately, all the geeky Psalms in Portland attached to it and in in Seattle. And it became this, it, it, it's, it was the calling card for me. It was the wine that masters of wine were like, what the fuck is like, what is this? And it changed my life from there on. Wow. That's so that's why Caprock and that's how. That's very cool. I I didn't know that's exactly how things started. And so you're, you go from 750 uh, pounds worth of fruit, 23 cases. Pounds. (laughs) Yeah. Pounds. Through, through the 22 vintage, you, w- w- Leah Jorgensen Sellers is what max, maxed out, is maxing out where in terms of cases? I, the most I did, yeah. Yeah, the most I did in vintage was 1800. So just under 2000. Okay. So okay. very tiny. I'm one woman and I'm not, I've had, I've, during and stuff, I was able to hire people to help out, but you know how it goes. It's I, I, I don't have the stamina with life to everyone says the recipe is you got to get it to 3000 cases. You got to get it to 3000 cases. But the anxiety for me was that like, okay, but if I scale like that, then what, because now all my costs increase, all that extra stress increases. And I wasn't ready for that kind of jump. I didn't have investors or people wanting to like handing me money and be like, we love what you're doing or we're going to, we believe in you here. Like I, at one point I did have some help and I was very grateful for it, but it was like worth a, it was like a vintage worth of support. And then it, that kind of disappeared and right. I had already committed to making the leap. And so, as the story goes, I just, I've had to keep it small and manageable basically. It's one, a one person shop wine, it, wine work is hard. Being in the cellar is difficult. It's physically demanding. It, it's a short period of time, but it's a very intense period of time. And then the hard work starts after that. It's selling, it's marketing, it's telling the story <laughs> over and over and over again, which is very fun. Don't get me wrong, but exhausting also. And it's hard. It's hard. We're at 3,000 cases now, and it's taken us a long time to get there. So one thing I want to talk about, and it, I I read a great post on your blog about your gap year. And you took the 23 yeah. vintage off. You didn't buy fruit. You didn't make wine in 23. Mm-hmm. For a person who'd been making wine for 10 plus years, not having that time filled with that set of activities in the fall. How was it? How did you come through that emotionally? It's a good question. Um, it, it really was easy because the heart of it was that I had a little boy who was sick in May and, and it just, it made my whole world stop. And thankfully he's okay and he's going to be okay, but there's a journey here that I, that we now have to take on that is at times terrifying. It's most of the time it's manageable, but I thought for me personally coming out of, okay, I had a, a difficult postpartum and then we had COVID and then we had this, and then we have war and we have all this stuff And I think I just was done with being in this fight or flight anxiety. And then, you know, my child has this thing and then my health was getting wonky. And I just had this sort of come to Jesus moment of, I need to just stop. I need to slow down. I need to take a breath because while all these things were happening, I don't have a staff to to pick up where I dropped the ball. Mm. And I was getting hammered by certain things. And so I just didn't feel like I had the energy the finances, all of those things to take on this next vintage when I was just still trying to like settle in my body of what is going on here. There's a grieving part. It was PTSD. I mean, there was a lot going on. And I think we often don't give ourselves enough 
support for our own mental health and our own just recovery from traumas. And, and so I knew if I took on something as intense as a harvest, it, for me, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to give me the space to heal the trauma. I, I can see where it would for some people. It depends on the trauma. You know what I'm saying? If I was, I've gone through breakups before where harvest was exactly what I needed. I just dove into my work, but this wasn't the kind of thing I needed peace. I needed quiet. I needed reflection. I needed to stop in my tracks. And even while I was, I've been using this time to be with my family and to just be present with my child and my husband and just to be like, figure out where, what's next for us. I've also had the time to do a deep dive into my business. And one of the things that I've been very interested in learning. So while I was taking this sabbatical, I studied herbalism and I got um, certified in herbalism and I'd already had a, a degree in holistic nutrition. So this is where that health care piece comes back from when I was in college, when I was studying, when I wanted to initially study pre-med and pediatrics. So I got into herbalism as a result of my child's illness, because I wanted to find things to eliminate triggers so that we don't have uh, the outcomes that can send us right. to an emergency room. So I wanted to empower myself and I found an incredible, an incredible tool and an incredible experience in herbalism and growing herbs. So while I was not in the cellar making wine, I tended to a garden in my backyard and I grew motherwort and ashwanga and marshmallow root. And I have eight hawthorn trees and I went inward and went into nature. And I, it's, this is going to sound very esoteric, but I established real deep relationships with some plants in my backyard and then I was able to harvest and make medicine and I made elderberry syrup and I made all these different things for my child that is helping support his health. That's helping to support my health, my mental health. My God, if I wasn't taking motherwort right now, I don't know what I would be doing. I mean, it's for me, it's been the thing to manage my anxiety, the, my, my maternal anxiety. Sure. So, so it wasn't a, it wasn't this lot me your loss for me, I'm a reframer. I always am. I, instead of looking at it as like loss, I look at it in a reframed perspective and I reframed it to look at what I'm learning, look what I get to do. And it's meaningful. And <clears throat> when it, it comes back to me focusing on Cabernet Franc again, I think I have a new lens because one of the things I learned, and this comes very heavily through the world of herbalism. It's a very intense and powerful and connected world the way the wine world is. Growers and medicine makers and herbalism, um, they are so on the forefront for regenerative agriculture and regenerative business in a way that the wine business is not yet. We are still in this place of sustainability. And while sustainability is fine, and good intentioned sustainability is really about sustaining status quo so things don't get worse. But regeneration is about let's get it back to where it was before we came into the picture. And it's just a different way of looking at things holistically and so that we have something to pass on for generations. It's a very different ethos. And so I'm really doing a deep dive and study into regenerative business right now. And certainly I'm doing regenerative agriculture and how I'm farming herbs for the medicines and things I'm making. It's very, it's fascinating. There, there are a lot of echoes in, in realizing that your greatest asset is, as a wine person is the land that you have planted to grapes. And the more care you give there, yes. you would think, and, and I think it's been proven, the, the greater care you give to the land, the better fruit you get. And if you're a good winemaker, the better wine you make. So I, that's, that's, I, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm glad that the year turned out that way rather than a different way, which is great. I'm glad. I'm glad we have a couple minutes left here. I just, I, I wanted to talk about briefly last year, June of last year, we had our first Capronca in Livermore as a way of highlighting the variety in, for the audience, the East Bay audience, for the most part, we had 30 some odd wineries from five countries and seven states uh, represented in one form or another as your wines were. And I don't know what we haven't really talked about. Your son was ill at that time. You weren't able to make it down to California. We hope that you can yep. make it May of this year when Catfranc Capuza number two happens. But you, you've been, you've had a lot of experience with IPNC. Mm -hmm. Is there value in these kinds of 
varietal focused festivals, carnivals, tastings <laughs> that, that Cab Francapalooza is supposed to be in terms of the growth and visibility of, of, of a grape? Yeah, I think anytime you are you're turning the pointing the anytime you are you're pointing towards a, a varietal and a group that wants to explore that. So anyone who's going to come to those events, it's important to make those connections and find your audience because just as we like to be, share the gospel of Cab Franc, those events are so hyper-focused that it really gets those people out there doing it tenfold because now they're speaking about not, you know, we're speaking about our own stories and we talk about the varietal in general of, of why we, why Cab Franc, as you asked. Right. But now right. we have these people going out in the world who are like, I've sampled Virginia, I've sampled Loire, I've sampled Bordeaux, Italy, Oregon, um, California, Livermore, Napa, et cetera. <clears throat> and I'm, all I know is I love Cabernet Franc. I love it more and more because of all these places. So like, I feel like the more we have opportunities for um, focus is always great. And just like with Lori Budd and her efforts with Cab Franc Day, I mean, she got a ball slowly rolling with that and then it took up momentum. So I feel like all of these things are important, but I have to be honest with you in that blog post that I mentioned, um, or actually not that one, but my most recent blog post, I went on this tangent about like, I feel a frustration because here I am, I'm one person and I'm trying so it, it, it's, I feel like it's on my shoulders now for some reason, <laughs> for obvious reasons, maybe, but to tell, you know, the story of Oregon Cabernet Franc and in a way that's compelling that again, we're pulling in, as we mentioned earlier in, in this conversation about these really unique soils and rocks from subduction, you know, all these different things that make this place special. And now I'm understanding after tasting 12 plus vintages of Cabernet Franc from this region, now I'm seeing some continuums and some really interesting uh, patterns and trends, if you will. And so I feel like I'm all that, I'm still, I feel like I'm failing the place. And maybe I'm just hard on myself, but I feel like I'm not doing, I'm not I question, am I the right person to be telling this story? Because it's very difficult. I've, I've had um, some, I've been very blessed. I don't have a media person. I don't have anyone doing PR for me. So the fact that any magazine has ever picked me up is astonishing to me. I, I don't know how they're finding me, but um, I'm grateful for it. And I've had some exceptional press, but all that said, I, I feel like I'm hitting this wall of what else can I do to get this story across about cab franc and that's when I, you know when i come into conversation with you it's a joint effort it's it, it can't right. just be about oregon cab franc right and i think we've had offline conversations about it it would be very interesting to really look at and, and i love the way when evening land winery first came about that they were doing this exploration of france um, California, Santa Maria in particular, and Oregon. And that was very focused Pinot Noirs from these three places. And <clears throat> I just think it would be interesting for there to be this very, yes, the events like Cab Franc Palooza and yes, Cab Franc Day, but taking it a step further on a on that intellectual that I'm talking about and the emotional piece that you're talking about, getting this across in a way that's driving the point. We, I feel like there just has to be this other piece that is necessary to get not just critics, because I've stopped submitting wines for scores and I've, I don't do competitions because that's not for me where the story is going. I want it to be, this should be editorial always. This should, the, the people should be chomping at the bit to write the story because it's exciting. It's still very new. Um, and even though I've been doing this for a few years and you've been doing it for a few years, it's still, it still has legs to go. It needs to move. It needs to move forward. There's no question. I, it, it's interesting. I feel a great deal of responsibility to represent my region in part because I think that the success of Livermore Valley needs to be tied into a grape. I'm one of those people who believes that regions yeah. that have been able to identify with a variety like the Willamette Valley for the most part with Pinot Noir and Napa with right. Cab and right. Pasco with Rhone varieties are much further along in terms of the public understanding what they do. 
than right. regions like Livermore or like parts of Washington State that do a lot of things well, but, totally. but aren't identified with anything in particular. So that's a losing game. I also realize, and I, and I actually had a meeting with my team yesterday, that I think the first priority for us is to work. And when I say us, the Stephen Kent Winery team, but I also mean Team Cab Franc, the Leah Jorgensons of the world, yeah. and the John Scupneys of the world, and, and everyone else who's making Cab Franc. It's really about brand Cabernet Franc at this point, like it was brand Oregon when yeah. you were working in Oregon. Yeah. Like there's a larger... <laughs> There's a larger reality that is not exactly great. it's it's in this case, it's it's a single grape based set of communications with the idea of helping people to understand what this thing is supposed yep. to be. And then you can funnel that down once, you right. know, once there is a, a critical mass of people who know what Cap Franc is, then then we're there. We're part of the playground they get to play in. Right. We have to keep our doors open, of course. But I think that the overall success story of Cab Franc comes about when we're all working toward the betterment of the variety and the message about the grape than we are about our own single sense of responsibility for a region. You're like we are in the sense that there aren't a lot of people in Southern Oregon who are making Cab Franc. So there's just, there's not a lot of, there's, there aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot of people that you can rely on and lean on and the like, and we're in a similar boat here too. So I, it's, it's doesn't make it easier, but there are people who understand what you're going through. I was just going to say that Oregon is very, Southern Oregon is similar to Washington in that way because there's so many varietals planted. And like you you said, there there really wasn't anyone pinpointing on anything other than actually the Rhone varietals have been more or less the main focus in Southern Oregon. But then you see a lot of Spanish and Italian. So it's a mixed bag. And then there are people who do make compelling, beautiful Cabernet Francs, but they're not focused on that. It's like they make one bottle, maybe two, but then they're doing really a lot with, there's this movement in Oregon of like mixed bag wineries where they're just, I love this. I love that. I'm going to try everything. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we're in a, a state that is, has been single vineyard, single grape focused, and now we're just going to throw, be wineries that do everything and the cha and the tarantella right nothing wrong with that do it follow your bliss but it doesn't help to tell the story of next generation what's next if it was more focused and there's a group of people who like okay i'm in this part of the columbia gorge milton freewater that i can't remember the name of that new aba but find your place and they're going to focus on I don't know if it has to be true. So make it true. So whatever that variety is, whatever it is, I feel like Oregon did a great job at it with the Willamette Valley focusing on uh, Pinot Noir, but now these new up and coming winemakers who are just, I feel like there's almost an insecurity. They don't know what to focus on. So they're going to do a lot of things. And I guess my, if I were to share wisdom or give advice to anyone who's coming in and thinking they're going to make wine in Oregon, I would just say, focus, figure out what your thing is and focus on it and find as many vineyards that support making that wine. And I don't want to stump anyone's creativity, but it just doesn't help the narrative when it's so all over the place. I feel like we need, if those people who were making Cabernet Franc were like, instead of doing just one bottle, okay, maybe I'm going to focus on Rhone and Bordeaux or whatever. Like, I, there just needs to be more of a an alignment in order for, I think, this sort of next generation to be successful. Because I think we're seeing millennials and especially Gen Y, they're not drinking wine right now. It's right. it's clear as day. My customers are mostly boomers and Gen X. Yeah. And, and I do have some millennials for sure. I have very little, if any, Gen Y. It doesn't help that we have, I, mean, I don't know if you heard about the state of Oregon recently, there was a health uh, organization that was encouraging Oregon citizens to not drink drink alcohol, including mm-hmm. wine. And the Oregon Wine Board went right to the governor and was like, you've got to, that's inflammatory. You've got to put an end to this because it's, we're the, one of the number one providers of, to the economy, the state economy in agriculture, to tourism, creating jobs. So you can't just all Absolutely. of a sudden now shut down the wine industry. We've no. had a tough enough year. Everyone's had a tough year. Absolutely. So all of that said, states need to really be 
And winemaking individuals need to be really thoughtful about how are we moving forward with our brand? Like you said, brand Cap Franc. Yes. And if there was more Southern Oregon focus on the varietal as there should be, I, in my opinion, then that was going to help elevate the story of brand Cab Franc that you're talking about. If you had a handful of people in the Livermore who are not just making one-off Cab Franc, but are really like, I'm ready to focus on this. I'm, right. I'm with you, Stephen. I think we should be planting more of this. That needs to naturally happen. Agreed. And that's the hard, that, that's one of the, the difficult things is that we don't have the Appalachian system that they have in Europe, where you plant what the government tells you you can plant right. in this area or what history has told you you plant in this area. And consequently, every time I talk about Cab Franc, I have a picture in my mind that part of what I'm trying to accomplish here is to get my compatriots here in Livermore to focus more attention on the variety also, because I think that there's a, if, if not exactly existential at this moment in time, I think down the road could be that we're not, this is not a Cabernet Sauvignon region. We're yeah. never going to compete with Napa Valley. That's too close to us to be focused on that grape. Chardonnay is not the grape because it doesn't grow well in a warmer climate as, as it does in, 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 in a cooler climate. Cabernet Franc, more diverse, all, all the things we know about Cabernet Franc. It's just important, I think, again, I like the word focus. Focus on the thing that 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 your that your region does well, can do well, can ripen well completely, and uh and make something that's exciting. Don't make something that's not exciting. Yeah, make something that's delicious. Leah, thank you so much for the conversation. Yeah. I look forward to talking with you more always. I know my audience is gonna love oh, hearing always. me. Thank the, you so much. 